Last week, we ended off in Matthew 5, verse 20, where Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, hearing that statement by Jesus there on this incredible Sermon on the Mount, sitting by the Sea of Galilee, this picturesque scene and environment as Jesus is sharing with his disciples and the, the crowds are gathering around. When people began to hear that statement, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, hey, you're not getting in the kingdom of heaven. That would have sent shockwaves to the listeners here at that moment. That would have sent, I think, a lot of worry and concern to those that were listening in. There was a proverb in this time that said, if only two people make it to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. That's the way that people viewed things as day. The Pharisees and the scribes, these religious leaders, were the pinnacle of righteousness. These are the guys that seem to have it all together, the masters of the law. But for such a long time, the law was being misused or abused. The, the Pharisees and the scribes were looking to follow it to the minutest detail. They looked at all the things that he had to do according to the law, and they said, well, as long as we carry this out in an outward way, we're going to be fine. They would go to the, to the degree of like, you know, when it's time to tithe, God, take all of our spices, let's divide all this up. Okay, we want to give a tenth to the Lord, a tithe. So they'd be like measuring out all their spices, counting out these little things that typically it's like, God's like, guys, you're wasting your time. not a big deal. And they're dividing it all up. Give a tenth. They want to make sure they're doing it right to the letter of the law. They're doing it all from an external thing. And it became such an exhausting thing to try to live out, but not so much just carrying out the law, but it was their interpretation of the law that they began to add to and make it much greater and heavier than it was ever intended to be. So in this pericope that we're looking at on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seeks now to bring people back to an understanding of the true intent of the law because things had gotten so far away from God's heart of the law. Now, the law was essentially broken down into three categories. You had the ceremonial law, that was their instruction regarding the worship of God, uh, the sacrifices and ceremonies that they had around the, the temple, um, and also the ceremonial kind of aspects of the law. Then there was the civil and judicial aspects of the law that dealt with you know, instructions for daily living and carrying out just punishment for crimes and, and things that were done against the law. And then you had the moral law, all right? which was really encapsulated in Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the, the 10 commandments, right? And, and that really was broken down upon our heart for God and our heart for one another, right? Our, our, our law morality wise regarding these things. But you see what happened is the religious leaders now, they've got the law and now they began to try to define the law, look at the law, spell out a law. And they, they began to break it down to see that there was 613 commandments of the law, 248 uh, do's, you shall do this. And then there were 365, don't, don't do this, you know, the, the shall nots, right? 
So they broke it down to 613 commandments. That's, that's a lot. I have a hard time just following the simplest of laws. Like even just this morning, I'm, you know, my wife and I park over in the parking lot across the street so that all of you have nice, comfortable parking spots to get to, <laughs> which I hear now is not so much of a problem, thanks to Dwight. He tells me it's lots of room out there, so I think I'll just park over here now and make it a little bit more difficult for you. But as I'm crossing the street, I'm like, honey, you know, I'm not waiting for that little man to show up. I'm just going to walk across the street. She's like, go right ahead, lawbreaker. And I'm like, man, you just take all the fun out of everything. But I'm like convicted. I'm like, all right, I'll wait with you until the little man pops up here. But I'm tempted always to like go against the law on the simplest of things. And here we've got 613 commandments. You can begin to see how hard this began to be in an outward way. But then to further complicate things, they began again to break down all these laws that were given in the word and they began to add their interpretation understanding of it. And that began to get codified in the third century in the Mishnah. And so the Mishnah now had all this kind of interpretation when translated into English was 800 pages long. And then uh, commentaries began to be written called the Talmud that began to explain just what you're reading in the Mishnah because it just became so complicated. Glancing, for example, in the Mishnah, we note and it says that a new lamp cannot be moved from one place to another on the Sabbath, but an old one can Hot food may be kept warm by covering with clothes, feathers, or dried flax, but not by covering with damp herbs or straw, which could engender fresh heat and thus would be considered work and violating the Sabbath in their day. I mean, they began just to go to the extremes on what it meant to follow the Sabbath. Because you've got written in the word in the, in the Ten Commandments, you know, keep the Sabbath, you shall keep the Sabbath holy, Right? And in it, you shall do no work. So everybody began, began to think now, well, what does it mean to do no work? What does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? What do we need to do to observe this law? And it's really quite simple because remember, Jesus comes along and he says, listen, Sabbath is not made for man, but man for Sabbath. It's to be a time of, of rest, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ as we see. But in the Old Testament now, and still with these religious leaders during the time of Jesus, they're looking at what do we need to do to really keep the Sabbath holy? So they began to, you know, in their interpretation say, Listen, if you've got uh, a prosthetic limb or hand, you've got to remove that on the Sabbath because to, to walk around with a prosthetic now or even false teeth would be, again, considering work on the Sabbath. So you can't walk around with that stuff. Anything heavier than a dried fig was seen as a burden. And so anything heavier than a dried fig was seen as work on the Sabbath. A woman could not look into a mirror because she might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair that would be considered harvesting work and you're not allowed to do it. You'd be breaking the Sabbath. This is the degree. If you spat on the ground during the Sabbath, your spit might roll in the dirt and it might create mud. That would be considered farming, plowing, violating the Sabbath. This is the way that they began to interpret. I'm not making this up. This is the way they began to interpret the law. Even to this day, I mean, uh, I read a report in, in 1992 where in an in a, um, Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, they let three apartments burn down to the ground while they waited asking a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law. And they weren't sure if we could call the fire department or not. Our buildings are burning down, but are we going to break the Sabbath? 
Buildings burned down on the ground. So you see the heaviness that the law brought. Now, for many of the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought they had it all down. We got to figure it out. We're upholding the law. We're upholding everything we desire. You know, the Pharisees began to kind of try to figure out ways to sort of circumnavigate the law, but even by saying that they are still observing the law, because on the Sabbath, you could only go a certain distance from your home. So here's what the Pharisees did. They began to build little lean-tos at those distances. The farthest you can get from your house on the Sabbath, they build a little lean-to and say, just an extension of my home. I can go this far. And then they build another lean-to after that, another distance that was permitted to travel on the Sabbath. And so they were able to kind of go different distances by circumnavigating around the law by saying, oh, it's just an extension of my home. See, they began to kind of get around things. But in their minds, they were righteous according to the externals of the law. They felt they had it all going on. And everybody else around them did as well. So when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. People are freaking out at that. They're going, what are we going to do? What, what hope do we have? Yet again, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sits down with his disciples and he begins to show them the kingdom way and that the kingdom way is really a matter of the heart. That there needs to be a work done inwardly, and it goes back to the Beatitudes where we started the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, realizing, hey, we're nothing in ourselves. We have nothing to commend ourselves to God. We're poor in spirit, but that's why we need a hunger and thirst for God's, what? Righteousness for his righteousness, because it doesn't come from our works or our efforts. What we bring to the table, righteousness doesn't come that way. That's why Jesus says it needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We receive his mercy, God's grace, and we understand this is all the work of his spirit that brings about the transformation of our heart. That's what's needed. And so Jesus now, he begins to go through some of the laws that they would have according to their Old Testament here, the scriptures. Of course, that's all that they had, the scriptures at this point. It goes through some of their laws to show them the true meaning of the law, God's intent of the law. And he shows that it's a matter of the heart. It's often been said that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. So Jesus is gonna take us through six examples of the law from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, chapter five. We're not gonna get into all that today, don't worry. But uh, he's gonna go through six examples of the law. And as he does, he shows us what has been said about the law from an external level, face value, like here's what's written, here's what's recorded, and here's what you're all trying to uphold to. But then he takes us now to look at what the true intent of that law really is. Now again, I want you to understand something. Jesus also said earlier in verse 17 that he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So let's keep in mind, when we look at these things, the law is not bad. And in fact, we oftentimes say, oh, we're not under the law anymore. As though we just kind of go, yeah, you know, unhook ourselves from the Old Testament. We're not under the law anymore. No, that's not a, a right way to look at it. The law is good. We're not under though the penalty of the law because that's what Jesus came to fulfill. He did it all righteously. He's the only righteous person that lived according to the law, that fulfilled the law, but now he's also fulfilled the requirements of the law 
for us, that all that put their faith in Christ can now be made righteous. We're not, we don't come and say, oh, we're not on the law. The law is good. But we know that the law isn't gonna save us or make us right. That comes through Jesus Christ. So let's keep that in mind as we look at this a little bit here. So he looks to the law. And as he looks at the law, again, Jesus is not looking to contradict it or say, oh, you've, you've heard it said this, say, oh, scratch that. Just mark, just put a line across that. You're like, oh, forget that. He's not coming to contradict it. He's simply coming to show the true meaning and intent, God's heart of it. He's not gonna contradict what Moses said. He's gonna contradict how the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted it and how they were trying to live according to it. He's gonna bring fuller meaning to it and show the true intent of the law. Now, here's what we're gonna look at as we go through um, the next few times in Matthew here. We're gonna get through a few of these here today. But the command said, of course, you know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, let divorce be done uh, properly, don't swear falsely, equal retribution, okay, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But then Jesus now shifts it over and he says, here's really the, the true heart behind that. Here's God's heart. Here's the intent of the law. It's not that you don't murder, it's that you don't harbor anger in your heart. It's not that you don't commit adultery, it's that you don't allow wrongful lust in your heart and that uh, you don't divorce except Press for sexual immorality. We'll even talk about that. Uh, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Go the extra mile for your adverse adversary. Don't just love your neighbor, but love your enemy and pray for them. That's how Jesus is now going to show the extent of the law, that it goes beyond the externals and it cuts to the heart, right? So look at this with me, verse 21. Whew, how are we doing? Okay, verse 21. We're getting into it now, guys. All right. It's a lot, just I, I want to make it clear to you just kind of what the law was all about and, and how people were using it and applying it to lies and now what Jesus shows us about it. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So these Statements that Jesus is going to go through in this chapter are, have become known as like the six antitheses, okay? Six antitheses. And, and each of them now begin with these words, or at least a form of it, you have heard that it was said. Here Jesus says in verse 20, you've heard that it was said to those of old. So he's passing on. Now remember, so much of what people received and were taught were simply things that were passed on from other, you know, rabbis and teachers. Not everybody had the luxury uh, of being able to read uh, uh, Hebrew and read the scriptures for themselves. So they relied upon what others were saying. And, and, and even in that, nobody spoke kind of of their own volition, but just simply what they and themselves had heard and now passed on. So in this case, Jesus points out the sixth commandment right, from Exodus 20, verse 13, that you shall not murder. We're all familiar with this. I think the majority of us here have all been good at, at, at following this, right? Amen? Amen? Majority, majority, at least 80%. <laughs> I'm, I'm praying and hoping. Now, like I said, people are very familiar with this, but they, but here's how, again, people interpret it. It's like, as long as I don't take a life. As long as I don't end a life, I'm good. I'm, I'm upholding God's word. I haven't murdered anybody. 
I've not pulled the trigger, everything's fine. Jesus is pointing out what the law said and the extent of where people lived it out, but now he begins to show the true heart of the law. And he does it by saying this, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, again, when Jesus said that, guys, that was a loaded statement. That was something that caused people to perk up and go, wait a second, who's this guy? Who does he think he is? But I say, like I said, people in this day, when they were teaching, they would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this. It's been taught this. And they would just simply say what's already been passed down. Nobody spoke from their own authority as Jewish rabbis in this day. They knew enough not to do that. But now Jesus comes along and he makes this huge proclamation. But I see in so doing, he's showing his power, his authority, and his deity. Everybody would, would have known right away that he's speaking from this position of absolute authority and deity. I mean, if there were Pharisees right then and there listening in, they would have begun to have anger growing in their hearts going, who is this guy? Nobody can speak like this except God. We don't even do that. And right away, I'm sure they're just filled with anger at this guy. And Jesus is like, hey, just hold on to that. I'm going to talk about that in a second here. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts, guys. You're not going to enjoy it, but you need it, right? That's kind of where Jesus is going with this here. Now, again, Jesus looked at a portion of the law that the religious leaders were all following outwardly. They were having no problem, right? I mean, all these guys would have been sitting there going, yeah, we haven't murdered anybody. We're upholding the law. They would do everything just short of that, though. And see, Jesus begins to show now the inward standard of God's righteousness. It's not only murdering someone outwardly that's gonna bring you into judgment, but it's having an anger inwardly towards another that can lead to judgment. Oh, that may not do you harm in the court of law as Jesus is addressing here that you're gonna be in danger of the judgment. The issues of the heart aren't always brought into the court of law, but we're gonna stand before the throne of God one day and we're gonna give an account. And that, what goes on in your heart, is gonna bring you in danger of judgment if you haven't dealt with that and surrendered that over to the Lord. See, we look at murders and wonder, how could anybody be driven to do such a thing? But the very anger that led them to do that is the very anger that pops up in our own hearts from time to time that we have to be so careful of. You see, Jesus is showing us that it's the condition of the heart that we need to look at. Most of us can look at the law and say, oh man, I'm good, I've never murdered anybody, I'm doing all right. But again, it's the attitude of the heart. See, when we have a root of hatred towards somebody or anger that's brewing in our hearts, we're in the same standing before God as a murderer, condemned under the law and in need of a savior. Now, the Bible says, Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and do not sin. There are times where there may be a righteous anger that flares up when we see corruption or we see injustice and we see sin happening at the, at the cost maybe of a, another life. We have uh, righteous 
you know, anger that might well up, but most of our anger doesn't fall in that category. We might try to justify it sometimes as that, but oftentimes it's an anger born out of selfishness and sin. Jesus gives a couple examples of it. He says, actually, here in, in verse um, 22, whoever says to his brother, Raka. Now that was like, a, it's an Aramaic uh, term, which means empty-headed. It was like saying, you bonehead or you blockhead, right? That's kind of what was the idea. And it was an affront to somebody's intellect. It was really challenging their intellect. It was kind of a, a real uh, a term of, uh, of just, it wasn't good, all right? It was an, an assault to them. So Raka was not, not favorable. But then you fool, we kind of go, ah, we say that to most people around us. Everybody's, everybody next to us is a fool sometimes, right? We kind of use that word very loosely. But in this day, to say you fool was even harsher than calling somebody empty-headed. See, saying you fool wasn't just an affront to their intellect. It was an assault on their character now. Saying, oh man, you're so far from who God wants you to be. You're just a fool. You're lost, man. It was a real assault on their character. It was a serious thing. And we have to recognize, who are we to throw around such kind of accusations as that towards our fellow men? Do we carry a kind of anger or hatred towards people that don't always line up with what we want or the way that we would do things? Who are we to stand in a position of judgment against them? Aren't those the people that Jesus died for, the people that Jesus came to this world to save? Isn't this the people that Jesus loved? And here we are cutting them down and placing ourselves in in judgment. When we throw out those kinds of things from a a place of anger in our hearts, it's as though we're murdering a part of them when we call them bonehead or, or idiot, when we speak judgmentally towards them. We need to pray that we have that same heart as the Father has towards them, that we don't harbor anger and murder thoughts in our heart. It's these things that can lead to judgment and danger of hellfire. Jesus says as much. Whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. He uses the word in the Greek Gehenna. It's an interesting word because Gehenna comes from Gehenna, uh, the Valley of Hinnom, which was south of Jerusalem. It was a place where in the Old Testament, kings um, Ahaz and Manasseh would sacrifice children to their God, their idol Molech. It was declared unclean by Josiah and then became a place to go and, and uh, throw refuse or, or the, you know, the, the carcass of an animal or, or person and just where these things were all taken to this Valley of Hinnom and burned. And the fires just continue to rage. And Jesus uses that, not in a, in a figurative sense to speak about a, a you know, allegorical hell. No, Jesus is using a literal place that would have been something they could associate with to describe a literal hell, a place where fires are gonna be burning, bringing people into judgment. See, people thought judgment would only be by being caught in the act. Again, as long as I don't pull the trigger or shed blood, as long as I don't do that, I'm going to be fine. Jesus says, no. It's what's going on in your heart that's going to bring you into judgment. So he says in verse 23, 
Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So the Jews would come and they'd bring their gifts and sacrifices. It was an act of worship before God and celebrating, thanking him for his goodness and his forgiveness in their lives. But if you remember now, Jesus, if you remember an offense with a brother, go first and make that right. Don't ask God to do for you what you're not gonna do for another. Don't ask God to come and bring forgiveness to you through the sacrifice you bring if you're not ready to walk in forgiveness towards another person. So Jesus says, go and make it right. Well, does that mean I have to go and track down everybody that I've wronged in my history? I don't know if I have enough time to do that. That's gonna take some decades, perhaps. Now, that's not what we're talking about. Be led of the Lord. Be led of the Lord. If you know that there's somebody that is grieving or hurt over how you treated them or how you responded to them, go and make it right. Maybe you've been hurt by somebody and you're harboring anger towards them. Go and share that with them and be ready to forgive them even if they're not asking for it. Maybe you come to church and you've been here to worship the Lord and you see somebody here that's like, man, that person didn't treat me very well. They took my parking spot one Sunday. Man, Lord, just would you deal with them? And we just love you, Lord. We worship you, God. Lord, just kind of bring conviction. Smite them down if you need to. I don't know, Lord, but just we love you, Lord. And we're just worshiping God. Meanwhile, we're thinking these thoughts towards somebody. God says, stop. Stop worshiping me in a vain way and get right with your brother first. That's what's important. God's all about reconciliation. That's what he's saying here in this. Be reconciled to these people. Do it with those that you've wronged or have been wronged by in our family here. That's what he means when he, when he calls out, if you remember your brother or your sister, it's within the, the, the family of God. But then your adversary, this is probably speaking about something that's not a believer. And he says, hey, Humble yourselves and be quick to get right with them. If they have a problem against you, well, they've got to find you and they're going to take you to the, the, the law courts. They're going to take you before judgment. He says, while you're on your way, get right with them. Do what you need to, to win them over. And yeah, that might mean you need to humble yourself and you might need to lay down your rights because you might be sitting there going, you know what? You deserved everything you had coming to you. You deserved exactly the way that I treated you, the way that I taught to you. Man, you deserved that. We might feel justified in that. But Jesus says, and humble yourself. Do what you can to get rid of them because it might be far more costly for you to be brought before the courts and they don't hear you. They don't, they don't believe that you're right and they're gonna imprison you. And you're gonna have to stay there until you pay the last penny. Guess what? When you're in prison, you got no income coming in. How are you gonna pay the last penny when you can't work? You're in prison. And so we need to get right with these things. Verse 25, I've jumped ahead. Verse 25, let me read what I'm just talking about here. I agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with them, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you'll by no means get out of there till you paid the last penny. It's a good lesson for us in this. Because many people have allowed anger to get the better of them. They refused 
to be humble and apologetic. They've fought their case and been unforgiven. And the only problem is that their anger has simply imprisoned them. They've walked around in bondage because of this anger that they feel they have a right to hold over another person. Instead of saying, you know what? I don't need that. I'm gonna walk in forgiveness. I'm gonna walk in humility. And guess what happens? You begin to be set free from all that poison and, and, and bondage that you have. And you get to enjoy the, the blessing and the freedom and the joy of life that Jesus has for you. Don't restrict yourself from what God has for you because of your inner attitudes. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Make things right with people. Be, be reconciled. Because this is what God has done for us when we least deserved it. We didn't deserve to have Jesus come to this world and die on a cross to save us. Yet that's what he did. So we could be right with him. Make things right with one another. Jesus says again, it's not just about murder outwardly. It's the condition of the heart inwardly. Anger will lead to danger. Keeping the law, it's not just an external thing. It is an internal thing. And we see that we are all guilty of breaking the law. But this is what Jesus wants people to see. We're guilty, but he is gracious. Oh, we're sinners, but he is a savior for us. And the heart of the law is to lead us to Jesus, to find what he has for us. And that's ultimately his righteousness and forgiveness. That doesn't come by following external rules. It comes by surrendering ourselves to Jesus and receiving what he has for us, being justified in and through him. Is that a wonderful promise for us, everybody? All right, verse 27. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I see to that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, again, shows right here, it's all about a heart issue, guys. Righteous living is measured by what's internal, not external. And again, every one of us that has blood pumping through our veins has most likely been guilty of this very thing. We can all sit here and go, oh man, I'm such a good husband, good wife. Oh, I would never entertain adultery. Never would ever see that as an option yet. How many times have we allowed those adulterous thoughts to take place in our hearts? Every time Jesus says, you lust after another person in your mind, in your heart, it's as though you've committed adultery with that person in your heart. We're, again, violating the law. Maybe not on an external way, but internal. That's what Jesus says. It's the intent of the law to show what's really going on in our heart, to show our unrighteousness and to be found guilty so we can come to the righteousness and justification in and through Christ. We need to admit our need. We're, we're just simply confirming what Romans 3.20 says, that there's none righteous, no, not one. And we need to surrender these things to the Lord. Jesus is not saying that the act of adultery is the same as adultery in the heart. Fornication in the head does not have the same consequences as fornication in the bed, but what Jesus is showing us is that they are both sin and both are in violation of the law the true intent of the law. So Jesus says, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, 
pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. You know, we're out of time. I'm just gonna leave that with you guys for this week here just to (laughs) process, meditate on. So confusing verses. Those are ones that have gotten a lot of people in trouble. You know, um, the early church father, Origen, took this so literally that he castrated himself. Yee, right? And a lot of people have. This has happened in recent times where people have plucked out an eye, cut off a hand because they thought this is the reason for their sin. Understand, Jesus is using hyperbolic language here. It's, it's, it's a, a literary form of just using exaggeration to kind of you know, really reveal a, a point here. Because if this is something that we're truly to apply to our lives, we're all showing up next Sunday with patches on our eyes and hooks for hands, <laughs> right? That's gonna be the reality for us next Sunday. You think our slides sometimes are slow on the, on the lyrics. Think about next thing, the guy on a hook trying to get that button pushed on the computer. He's like, I can't get it. Going to be in trouble. Memorize those lyrics. But see, here's what Jesus is showing us here. <laughs> That's a visual, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> Guys, I have no time. Stay with me here, okay? <laughs> Got to get through this. What Jesus is showing us here is that the eye is not the reason for your sin. The hand is not the cause of your sin. These are the instruments, yes, that oftentimes execute the action of sin externally, but the attitude of sin began well before that. It started right in the heart. Murder was not the only sin itself. It was the result of sin that was brewing in your heart through murderous attitudes and thoughts and anger. Adultery is not the sin itself. It's what your lusting thoughts led to. Sin began well before the external act. See again, you could remove an eye. The Bible says your right eye, your, your right hand, because again, that's the side of that strength. You know, that's why we say, man, I'd give my right arm for that. It's still a saying, it's this symbol of strength. Typically, most people are, are right-handed. For those of you who are left-handed, we, we love you still. It's okay, but um, it's usually the symbol of strength. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you could remove your right eye, but guess what? You got another eye. You could cut off your left, your right hand, you got another hand. You got many more members of your body that can still sin. You could be left just with like your torso or wheeled in on a Sunday in a, in a chair and you still got a mind that can think sin and a heart that can still brew evil intent. You're not immune from it because it's beyond the externals to the internal. This is why, my friends, we need to be born again. Nothing fixes our problem unless you're surrendering everything over to Jesus and allowing him to make you new. That's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Are you following with me here in this? Some of you, a few, minimally are. Are you following me with, uh, with this? You getting it? Okay. It's important here to understand Jesus' heart. But what Jesus is communicating to us, I believe in these in these verses that we just read here, 
in verse um, 28 and 29 is that we do need to deal with sin. We need to deal seriously with sin. Again, it's exaggerated language, but it's like, man, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What's going on in your heart? If there's something brewing in your heart that's sinful, you need to cut it off. Just say cancer in your body. You need to remove it lest it spread. Deal with it. This is what Jesus is revealing to us. And deal with it seriously. Otherwise, it's going to have a very negative effect in your life. And it's going to lead you down a path of unrighteousness. You need to deal with that issue of sin and that starts right in the heart. Verse 31 and 32, last verses we're gonna look at here. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who's divorced commits adultery. Now, we're gonna talk a lot more about marriage and divorce in upcoming chapters in Matthew. We'll get into it in a more significant way then, but let me just kind of summarize this a little bit here for us. Now, there are two camps regarding divorce. And again, uh, you know, Moses issued a certificate of divorce, but remember Jesus says in Matthew 19 that he did that because of the hardness of your hearts. This is never God's intent. Scripture says God hates divorce. But now because of this law that was given, there were, there were two schools of thought that happened. Uh, and there was Rabbi Shammai, who was a conservative rabbi. And he said, and again, this is all based on Deuteronomy 24, verses one to four, where it says that, you know, you shall not divorce unless for sexual immorality. So they began to interpret, well, what does sexual immorality mean exactly? Well, Rabbi Shammai, conservative, said, well, it, it certainly means, you know, unfaithfulness, sexual immorality, so that's the only cause for it. But then Rabbi Hillel comes along, and he's a liberal, all right? He comes along, and he says, well, I think sexual immorality and uncleanness can be a little bit more broader than that. And he began to interpret and say, you know what, if your wife happens just even to uh, mess up your breakfast, burn your toast, divorce. She made you unclean. She got you angry. She, she messed up your breakfast. You got unclean, divorce. If she spoke negatively of your parents, again, oh, that's, no, divorce. If you saw a more virtuous woman than your wife, well, she'd be unclean by comparison, divorce. They began to lay out all these different terms for what would qualify divorce in a, in a liberal setting. But it got far away from the intent of the law because God says, I hate divorce. And it's only because of your hardness of heart that he gave us to go divorce to, again, bring some protection. Some people believe that that uh, area of divorce was only really to be for those that were betrothed in marriage. Remember, in a marriage, there was the engagement where the terms all worked out. Then the betrothal, where they came and shared their vows, they were legally married, but they would not consummate the marriage until up to a year later. While the husband's been off building a place at his father's house for him and his bride, he would later come and gather his bride. They would come back, and that would begin the wedding celebration, and that would be the consummation of the marriage, up to a year after the betrothal. So during that betrothal, they were legally married, but then... If the wife was found to not be a virgin, unclean, you could give a certificate of divorce. That's how, when we see the Christmas story and Mary and Joseph, Mary's found to be pregnant, Joseph's going, whoa, hold on a second, that's not mine. You've been unfaithful, unclean. And it says that he's, he's 
um, looking to put her away secretly, to divorce her. And do so in a, in a caring way, but he feels like, I, I can't marry her now, she's unclean. Because he hadn't consummated the marriage yet. Didn't become one. See, this is not giving any kind of a clause to see how can we get out of marriage. Because God's heart for marriage is oneness and it's a lifelong commitment that we make. Our heart should not be, how can I get out of this? It's, how can I reconcile this? Even in the midst of unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness does not mean, oh, all right, automatic out. Yeah, thank you. All right, I can wash my hands of this. Our heart should always be reconciliation. And if a spouse wants to continue to live in adultery, then okay. Then you know that there's, there's, there, there's, no, there's no room here. There's not... But again, our heart should always be to hold on for reconciliation because that's what, that's what God has done for us. We need to be willing in marriage to lay down again our rights and our wants and our desires. And, and, and Jesus modeled that. I mean, marriage, husbands are called to model what Jesus did. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's what we're called to do. And when a husband is loving their wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, then the wife is going to be like, oh man, I have no problem giving myself for this. I have no problem living committed and, and living reserved for my husband and, and honoring him. And when a wife is doing that, then the husband again has no problem loving and serving. And again, it's a, it's a mutual submission to take place. But it all is to picture what we have in Jesus because God is a reconciling God, isn't he? And God has done that for us and how we need to continue to serve one another in that. However you may view divorce, there are consequences that ensue. Nobody gets off unscathed. No matter what happens in a marriage, even sexual immorality, there's always opportunity for reconciliation. That's God's heart. And here we've seen the the true heart of the law and the intent of the law. Worship team, I'm gonna invite you to come up. But I think this morning we have opportunity and time to search our hearts. I think that's important for us to do regularly. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Guys, we need to do this regularly. And today, we've been exposed to things that might be brewing in our heart that sometimes we pass because we go, on the outside, everything's good. Right? I mean, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. You got yourself all polished up on the outside, but inside are dead man's bones. You're not right. And we too need to do some self-examination, ask the Lord to search us and say, God, what's really going on in my heart? Because on the outside, I might have everything together. Is that truly what's being reflected in the heart and on the inside? Because that's what matters to God. That's what the law is all pointing us to, is to say, where's your heart? Are you standing in the righteousness of Christ that comes by him giving you his righteousness internally, being born again? Or are you relying upon your works and efforts. May we come to him today and say, Lord, search me, know my heart, reveal areas that maybe I need, like cancer, to cut off. So that I might have, as the Beatitude says, blessed are the pure in heart, for what? They shall see God. 
Don't let anything get in the way of you walking close with the Lord, all right? Let's pray. Lord, we want to commit ourselves to you here in these things. We thank you for what you shared here in this amazing sermon and how relevant it is to us, Lord, because we, in the same way as the scribes and Pharisees, can put on a great act and reveal like we've got it all going on. And yet you and you alone only really know what's going on inside. And that's what's important to us, Lord. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we want our heart to be right with you. And it can only be made right with you when you do that work in us, Lord. So may we surrender to you. May you reveal to us things that maybe we need to cut off and do serious, serious surgery in these matters of sin. But lead us in your way, and your way is everlasting. So lead us in these things now. By your spirit, we pray.